Phoebe and Lincoln, patriotic tune. America is beautiful, folks, and a thank you to all the veterans who have uh, made it a point of their lives as they're still living today. We all know that Memorial Day is normally recognizing uh, those who have died in the line of battle, and Veterans Day memorializing all veterans who have made it their life's ambition to protect the wonderful freedoms that we have and are blessed with. So thank you, all of you veterans. Also, I forgot to know that, uh, make note of at uh, my scripture reading time. I'm sorry I got out a little late today. I would, if you're new here, if you've uh, got a few minutes before you go over to the fellowship luncheon, I'm going to be at the front here afterwards and, and would love to get to know you and get to know your name. And, and if you'll come up and introduce yourself, that would be a blessing for me. Let's turn to Luke 11, uh, chapter 11. We'll pick up around verse 14. As you find your place there, you can listen as I read from Genesis chapter 3. In context here, Satan, in the form of a serpent, had just deceived Eve into eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which she then handed to her husband. And God is about to pronounce the curse on the serpent. In verse 13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and her seed. He, meaning the seed, will crush you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. The mention of Eve's seed there, or offspring, it's often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. All that means is the first gospel. The first gospel. Immediately after the fall, folks, this is God's first promise of a descendant of Eve. A descendant of Eve who will come, Eve, the name Eve means the mother of all living, uh, her descendant, he will come, it's in the singular, and he will crush the serpent's head. So this conflict makes reference to God's promise of Christ very early in the Bible, in the first chapters, the first pages. And as I read to you during our scripture reading, the conflict continues, continues on into and beyond even uh, the writing of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, There, Satan is described as the one who deceives the whole world, but is ultimately defeated. In Revelation 12, verse 10, God says, With a loud voice from heaven, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night, and they, referring to believers, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. So it's relatively easy to see in the Bible that it depicts a great battle between the devil along with his fallen angelic realm, those angels that followed him into rebellion, against God and his elect, his chosen His people, from cover to cover, folks, Genesis to Revelation, Satan is the accuser of mankind, God's son 
is ultimately the justifier of all who overcome. You know, it's been correctly said that the the Bible is a book of redemption. That is correct. Uh, I like to think of it more accurately as described a book about a redeemer. There is a redeemer, Jesus God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one, right? And although Jesus as redeemer is promised even in the first pages of scripture, Satan has been allowed (laughs) to persist in, in wreaking this havoc upon mankind uh, for at least six millennia now. As Martin Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, his probably most famous hymn, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And, you know, a question commonly asked of us as Christians is, is Why? Why is Satan allowed by God to continue this assault that is ongoing? Why did God permit him to torment Job? If God is all-powerful, and he is, uh, why did he allow the serpent to tempt Eve in the first place? Why is the devil still prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? That's 1 Peter 5.8. All these questions, why why didn't God just expel him from the garden? Before he tempted Eve. Or when Satan and his angels rebelled, why didn't he just immediately cast them into hell? Why delay 6,000 plus years? You know, and and we as Christians need to be ready to answer uh, why this conflict continues. Because it's asked all the time. And our passage today provides contributing fragments to that puzzle about why the demonic realm is so active and so powerful. And in verse 14, as, as he has in the past, Jesus again casts a demon out of a man before a large crowd. Evidently, the supernatural element of this exorcism was, was so spectacular that the, that the people stand in amazement. They're, they're simply amazed. They're stunned. Other people we see in verse 15, uh, who Matthew seems to identify as Pharisees, These other people insist Jesus does such works by the power of Beelzebul. Your translation might say Beelzebub. That's fine. Same figure. He's the prince or the ruler of demons, which verse 18 assures us is a direct reference to Satan himself. Still are others, we see in verse 16, they they want to test Jesus. Apparently the the paranoid or uh, supernatural element Uh, of this exorcism, it it wasn't paranormal enough for them, all right? It, it It wasn't fanciful enough for them. They demand a cosmological sign. They want to see a sign in the heavens. They they want a sign that would defy the laws of physics. You know, show me, show me something. They're asking Jesus. And for the most of the uh, most part we'll set their ultimatum to the side until next week where Jesus addresses their, dem- their demands in verse 29. But, but what we need to gather is that as Jesus now is approaching closer and closer to the cross, the antagonism to him is increasing all the more. It's coming on all fronts. He's engaged with direct combat with the demonic, re- demonic realm in verse 14. There are crowds who are amazed, yet they're watching from the sidelines. 
Some falsely accuse him in verse 15, and still others are demanding signs. Resistance to Jesus is now multifaceted. It's, it's growing. So in defending himself, he, he addresses the first accusation against him, that he's cooperating with Satan. That's the accusation. He's cooperating with Satan when he's casting out this demon. So in, in verse 17 and 18, knowing their thoughts, Jesus says this, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For, I say the, uh, for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. In a nutshell, Jesus' first defense says, when have you ever seen Satan standing against himself? When have you ever seen him divided? And since the rebellion in heaven, the demonic realm has been completely allied against God and against his Christ and against his people. The opposition to God, uh, the demonic realm has always been allied Striving against yourself, that's self-destructive. That doesn't make any sense. Darkness doesn't strive against darkness. It's all just dark, right? Instead, darkness battles against light. So the notion that Satan was working through Jesus to undermine his own work, it's, it's first illogical. It's illogical. What makes their accusation further absurd is this. These religious leaders, whoever they are, never made the same claim of their own Jewish exorcists. Never claimed that against them. Verse 19, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? You know, Judaism was known for having trained exorcists. Whether or not their exorcisms were ever actually successful, that is debated. But never had the Pharisees accused their own. When, when their own attempted such acts, never accused them of cooperating with Satan. Why suddenly now are they bringing that charge against Jesus? Because he's been successful? Because he's actually able to do it? Because he, still has, uh, he actually has the power over the demonic realm? How then does the charge suddenly arise out of nowhere? That clearly doesn't make any sense, Jesus is saying. So it seems as though at the end of verse 19 that Jesus is suggesting that, you know, their hearty past endorsements of their own exorcists, endorsing their own people, now, now that just serves as judges against you. You've never made that charge before. So Jesus is he's exposing the futility of their argument. Why would anyone make such a foolish accusation? What proof was there throughout his entire ministry that he'd ever cooperated with Satan. Think about that. There wasn't any evidence. Instead, what they actually see is Jesus dismantling Satan's kingdom. He's dismantling it. That is the substance of verses 17 to 19. They're false accusations. They just add up to fallacy. Jesus in verse 20, uh, verse 20 now he's going to introduce everybody to reality. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's reality. That's the truth. Any uh, 
religious leaders who were present and listening there would quickly recognize that Jesus' finger of God reference, the reference to the finger of God, um, they would know right away that that's a statement referring to Moses' battle against Pharaoh's magicians. In Exodus 8, verse 18, when the magicians could no longer imitate the miracles of Moses and Aaron, that's what the magicians were doing. That's what magicians do. They imitate reality. They were imitating with their arts the miracles of Moses and Aaron. And when the, when the plagues came to the point where they could no longer imitate them anymore, they couldn't imitate the miracles of Moses and Aaron, their explanation to Pharaoh was this, what you're seeing is the finger of God. Even the magicians knew that. We, we can't do it because it's the finger of God. This is one of the reasons I, I personally, you don't have to necessarily agree, I personally don't think the Jewish exorcisms were ever successful. Scripture always contrasts what Jesus was accomplishing, casting out demons, against what the religious leaders were doing. Jesus was doing what they could not do. The reasons the crowds were so amazed was because what they saw Jesus, that was actually real. What they were seeing, they were amazed, they're stunned because Jesus is actually casting out a demon. What they saw of their Jewish exorcists, well, that was TBN, folks. It's manufactured. That's why those seven sons of Siva in Acts 19, who represented the family of the Jewish exorcists, they were overpowered by an evil spirit. They fled from that house. They're naked and wounded. And that passage suggests that they were attempting to imitate what the Apostle Paul was doing. Again, they're attempting to imitate what God does. No, Jesus is saying, my works, like those of Moses' works, are the finger of God. And they're evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Rather than cooperating with the forces of darkness, Jesus is dismantling Satan's kingdom, rendering him powerless. Powerless, you can see in Hebrews 2, verse 14. And they were correct in recognizing that Satan was responsible for this man's possession, the demonizing of this poor man, but incorrect in suggesting that Jesus is somehow helping. In actuality, what they had just witnessed was Jesus disarming Satan, taking him out. For when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Forces of darkness, demonic forces, had taken up residence in this man. They had possessed him. He became a dwelling place for Satan, Satan's forces. Satan's evil spirit, the unclean spirit that indwelled him. So it was Satan's house, symbolically. Satan is the strong man. He's fully armed. He's defending himself. He guards this new residence with the man. And all of his possessions remain undisturbed. Until what? Until what? Well, verse 22 tells us what? Until someone stronger comes and attacks him, and overpowers him. This is another reason that I don't believe, personally, 
that the Jewish exorcists were ever successful. We've discussed this before. Exorcisms were never typical in the Bible. Only, the only Old Testament allusion that I can remember comes to mind is, is that might be an exorcism is uh, when David was playing the harp for Saul. You can look at that in 1 Samuel 16, verse 23. And in the New Testament, though Christians are provided in the epistles detailed instructions on how to conduct spiritual warfare, how to prepare for spiritual warfare, much detail, no instructions are provided in the epistles about how to cast out a demon. Why? Because it takes someone stronger than Satan, stronger than a fully armed Satan, to overpower him. Does stronger than Satan seem to describe the sons of Siva, the seven sons? No. They fled from the tent, naked and wounded. Does it describe the Pharisees, stronger than Satan? No. This again seems to suggest that only Christ and his disciples, whom he personally delegated, you will see if you go to Luke 9 verse 1 and Luke 10 verse 19, he personally delegated to them the power. That means they didn't have the power on their own. He had to delegate it to them in Scripture to perform successful exorcisms. It requires a man stronger than Satan to disarm Satan. In the middle of verse 23, that stronger man, that is Christ, takes away from Satan all of his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. That's how strong Christ is. At that point, the strong man who is Satan has, has no armor. He, he retains no power. What's left then? No longer is there a strong man. There's nothing there but a straw man. When Christ comes with his power, Satan's a straw man, folks. He has no power. And when Christ arrives, Satan, he's left in a puddle. He's left in a puddle because God the Son is infinitely stronger. Jesus is the stronger man. Satan can't do anything, folks, without permitting uh, God permitting him first. Can't do anything. God is stronger. When we look at the story of Job, we see Satan, he's on a very short leash. A leash uh, dictated by God. In Job, he declares you can only come so far. During Job's first test, if you look at that, God tells Satan, you can take his family and his possessions, but you can't touch his physical body. Job 1 verse 12. During Job's second test, God says, now... You can touch his body, but you can't take his life. Job 2, verse 6. Who's in command? Who's in control? God's in control. So when God arrives on the scene, Satan's completely defenseless and powerless to the will of God. That's what, exactly what the people observe when Christ is on the scene. Though, aren't we, though we aren't given specifics in the passage... If this was like the other occasions that we've already studied, such as the demoniac we looked at in Luke chapter 8, Jesus merely by his spoken word commands, commands the spirit to leave. Only by a word. That's how strong Christ is. And after that, all those demons leave, that legion of demons, that man there is sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
clothed in his right mind. That's how powerful Christ is. Um, Think about this. Does restoring a man to health, does restoring a man to his right mind, casting out a demon and bringing a man to his, his right mind, does that look anything like the works of Satan? Doesn't look anything like Satan. Jesus could ask these crowds, some of whom were accusing him of cooperating with the devil. When you look at scriptures, when do you ever see Satan or his evil spirits restoring someone to peace? When Satan is given permission, he delights in persecuting Job. He loves it. Evil spirits, they tormented Saul. The serpent deceived Eve in the garden. Satan takes immense pleasure in these activities, in deceiving and destroying. In fact, in Scripture, sometimes a nickname for Satan is the destroyer. That's what he does. He destroys lives. He destroys God's God's plan, or he attempts to destroy anything that he thinks is part of God's plan. While Jesus' entire ministry had been one of restoration, think about that. Jesus' entire ministry was one of restoration. He's now eh, roughly three months from the cross at this point in Scripture. So the Pharisees, the people, they'd observed most of his earthly ministry by now. He's fed the hungry. He's healed the sick, he's cleansed the leper, he's raised the dead, he's consoled the widow, ministering for years and surrounded for months by by thousands of people, witnessing everything that Christ had done. In all of that, they had never seen Jesus' sin. Think about that. They never saw him sin. And here, besides, beside Jesus, sits a man liberated from an evil spirit. He's in his right mind now. Uh, in the account in Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus says, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. And there are people here in Luke 11, verse 15, who dare to charge. After all they have heard and witnessed, they dare to charge that Jesus Christ is casting out demons by the power of the devil. Do you think that sin will be forgiven? If there were one sin that that might not be forgiven, might it probably be suggesting that the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit through Christ is satanic? He who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, will he be forgiven? That will go to in Luke chapter 12. It's where we cover that unpardonable sin. But as we wrap up here, obviously the people who are watching, they're they're divided about Christ. They're uncertain about Christ. Some, Some are sitting on the sidelines. They're watching. They're amazed. Wow, look what he just did. At least a few are accusing him of being aligned with Satan. Others are demanding a sign because they they don't believe him. We'll deal with them next week. Those make up three categories. But still there's one person left. Can you think of who it is in the picture? There's still one person remains. 
to decide where he stands. Who would that be? The man. The restored demoniac. He's got to decide what position he's going to take on Jesus. He's now sitting in his right mind. And I think this next statement by Jesus, it's made for the benefit, I think, of him. Of, of him. Because with Jesus, you can't rem- remain neutral, folks. You can't remain neutral. You, you, you have to take a stand with some part of the segment of the crowd. You're either with me or you're against me. Folks, crowds just being amazed with Jesus, that's not enough. That's not enough. Lots of people in the world are just so impressed with the personality of Jesus. Just amazed with him. Impressed by his character, his wit, his boldness. Here, his miracle, very impressed. They can say, you know, I I just love Jesus. Just love him. I'm so impressed. You just look at what he's done and how courageous he is and how smart and witty he is. They, They might even quote him when it's convenient. But they take the relationship no further. They never take up their cross nor follow him to Jerusalem. So in verse 23, we see one of the most exclusive statements by Jesus in Scripture. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In effect, it's not possible to remain neutral. It is not possible. There's no fence sitting with Christ. You can't merely profess to know Christ. A person might say, do you, do you know Jesus? We ever go out in the park and do that? And Hey, hey do you know Jesus? Well, well, yes. You know, I saw him the other day. I was in a crowd when he healed a demon-possessed man. I was standing right there fairly close, and I, I saw what happened. Surely, I know Jesus. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, yes. Of course, I grew up with my whole family going to church. We're all Christians in my family. In fact, if I think back 20 years, I think I'm still on the membership role of that church. Of course, I'm a Christian. We're all Christians. My whole family is Christian. Know what I'm asking? Are you with him? Are you with him? Are you gathering the harvest with him? Or are you fence-sitting? Do you just know of him? Verse 23 is almost a restatement um, of what was recorded in Luke back in chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Just as Jesus traveling toward the cross, being mocked, being ridiculed for his teaching, accused for evil doing when he was actually doing good, facing hostility on multiple fronts. Does that describe your faith? Does that describe your life? Does that describe your commitment to Christ? Because he who is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. There's a tipping point, folks. There's a tipping point from being an amazed spectator to actually following him to Jerusalem, being part of him. 
being aligned with him, just as the demonic realm is aligned with, Christ, with Satan. Being aligned with Christ all the way to the cross. There's probably no clearer illustration of the, sense, uh, of the fence sitting than what we see from time to time with just celebrity figures, especially celebrity preachers, who when interviewed, they want to sidestep the question. You know the question. Is Jesus the only way? And they're on national television and the camera's rolling and they got the makeup on. And they look so good and boy, they don't want to disappoint the host. Not a fear of offending Larry King. They just capitulate to the host's suggestion. There must be other ways. Folks, there's no other way. You can profess Christianity publicly. You can claim you're a Christian. But are you saved? Are you with him? Because you have to be for Jesus. Or by default you're acting against Jesus. There's no fence sitting. If you're not gathering the harvest with him, by default you are scattering. This is what bothers me most about people denying that Jesus is the only way. Especially on television, in the media, anywhere, really. Um, who might claim that they're Christian, but at the same time acknowledges there must be some other decent and noble way to God. Another decent and noble way. Doing that, by doing that, you're by default encouraging people to go ahead and seek that other noble way. Quote, unquote, noble way. You're telling your listeners to go ahead, see if there's another way. Possibly find another way. One who doesn't defend the truth that salvation is available only through Christ. Effectually, what you're doing when you don't stand on Christ alone is you're encouraging people to go ahead and find another way. There must be other ways. What are you doing? You're scattering. You're scattering from Christ. If you are not gathering with Christ, you're scattering from Christ. In effect, you're granting license to pursue false religion that denies Christ. No one else has authority over demons. As Peter said, nobody else has the words of eternal life. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nobody else was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Nobody else died on a cross for sins and then rose from the grave three days later. Nobody else said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody else but Jesus. So I believe this final statement is to the demoniac. It's an incredibly difficult passage in verses 24 to 26. Few resources that I have take any uh, really hard land on the interpretation. But I, but I think myself, I think it's a warning to this man over whom this conflict began in verse 14. Who's now sitting in his right mind, needing to now make his decision with whom he will stand. Will he stand with the blasphemers? Will he stand with the people now seeking a sign from heaven? Will he stand on the sideline? with people who don't want to commit? Is he just going to blend in with the group that stands amazed? 
or will he stand with the man who saved him from the demon? Boy, for me, that, that's about a no-brainer, folks. No-brainer. Here's Jesus' warning to him. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Well, that's a dandy. Previously, we learned that in ancient times, dark, watery places, those like a sea or a lake, a dark place, was symbolic for earlier cultures of an abyss, a dark abyss, a judgment, a watery abyss, they would refer to it as. So I think Jesus implies this evil spirit that he cast out had temporarily avoided God's ultimate judgment to the watery abyss. You follow me? That's what I think he's implying. Unlike the swine we studied before that were charged down into the abyss. Here it seems like the spirit that he cast out avoided the watery watery abyss. So when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places. Seeking a place to rest. Where is there to rest? There's nowhere to rest. In this fallen world, there's nowhere to rest. And not finding any, it says... I'll return to my house from which I came. That's 